This episode is available ad-free for Peakery Tribe members. Go to peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe, subscribe for free and get the ad-free version. Well, hello, everybody. Don here to introduce this episode of the Peaceful Creativity Podcast. In this episode, creativity coach Arno CZ interviews Charles Spearin of Broken Social Scene. And do make say think. I know, right? Charles is also the creator of the Amazing Happiness Project album, which celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. They talk about camaraderie in music, the joy and challenges of raising teenagers, three kinds of dances that matter in life, and much more. This episode is brought to you by the Pikri Tribe. Go to peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe, subscribe, and get access to the ad-free version of this podcast, the three steps method to find your peace of mind now ebook, and many more creative and peaceful goodnesses. Again, that's peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe. Charles is extremely kind and insightful, and I'm pretty sure this interview just like the Happiness Project will put a smile on your face. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, the pleasure is shared. I don't, think, I don't think you remember it, but you and I actually briefly talked uh, 10 years ago when you were playing in, I believe, Leipzig in, in Germany. You were playing, and that was during the tour that Do Make Say Think did with the Happiness Project. And I remember what you told me very clearly because you were like, I was like, oh, thank you guys. That was awesome. And you were like, thanks for dancing. And it made, I remember that because... In my head, I was like, I waited 10 years to have uh, the song Frederica live. So, of course, when you play it, of course, I'm going to dance. So <laughs> that's a nice little memory I have, thanks to you and the great music that you do. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners who, don't, uh, who are not familiar with your work? Okay, sure. My name is Charles Spearin. I play in a bunch of different bands. I'm a musician from Canada. Toronto, Canada. I play in basically my main project is Broken Social Scene. We've been playing together for 20 years now. And then also my other main project, I don't want to pick and choose, but uh, Do Make Say Think is a, a band that's been around for 25 years. Um, often kind of left on the back burner because of other projects, but still very dear to my heart, important band. And we're still active. No, we're still a band, but we're not very active right now. <laughs> and then I've done a handful of other projects. I put out a solo project in 2010 called The Happiness Project, which was a bit of an experiment with the human voices and playing with the melody of speech. I have a touring musician. I toured with Feist for several years. I'm just a local guy, a musician in Toronto who's um, had the good fortune of coming across good peers and good friends. And so I've made a career out of it, basically. That's amazing to hear that that is what you've done and that is possible. Already, we are one question in the interview and already a positive message uh, shared to the world. So thank you for that. <laughs> So we're going to talk about all those various projects but, and bands, but uh, let's start with what you're most excited about. So currently, what's important in your life in terms of creativity and, and projects? This, I'm working on two projects right now. One of them is done, essentially, 
And I'm very excited because that's going to be coming out hopefully in August sometime. I'm not sure because of the global situation and what we're going to do about it. But the title of this project is called Thank God the Plague is Over. And it may be a moment too soon. <laughs> I'm not sure. But the funny thing about it is I was invited to kind of a music writers retreat last summer in, in northern Italy. So there was a group of musicians, Leslie Feist and Damien Rice and some members of Big Beef and a bunch of like real like amazing inspirational people. And I was so thrilled to get invited to this writer's retreat. And so basically we would just write uh, music together every day. There was no real agenda to it, except to explore creativity and work together with other interesting people. And while I was there, I met a violinist named Josephine Runstein from Sweden. And we made an album together, just the two of us, because down the road from the castle was this medieval church. And so we went, I brought, I play an instrument called the nickel harpa, which is a Swedish medieval instrument, like a violin, but with buttons. And, and Josephine brought her violin. So we went down to this little church to listen to the acoustics. And we had never met. We had met that morning. And he's like, oh, well, bring your violin. I'll bring my nickel harpa. We'll go to this little church. We'll improvise a bit to see what the room sounds like so that maybe we can record here. And the two of us walked down the, the gravel path to this little church with a few other friends. Are they friends now? But we, I hadn't met anybody there, essentially. And we went into this church and we both picked up our instruments and we started playing. And it was one of the most exciting improvisation experiences of my life. The way we played off of each other was, it, it was like we had been playing together for 50 years. Like we, we just listened to each other so beautifully and the sound of the room was just magical. So when we finished our 20 minute improvisation, we were just grinning and we decided to go back every day to record and improvise and record. We did that for the rest of the week. Every day we would go to this little church and improvise and we collected this recording of improvisations. But I should tell a little bit about the church because it was kind of the third collaborator in a sense. It's a tiny church, like maybe, I don't know, 12 feet by 20 feet or something like that. A tiny little church with plaster walls and on the walls there was graffiti all over the walls oh, wow. um, but it was ancient graffiti from the time of the plague so basically all these scribbles on the wall were essentially saying please god save us from the plague because oh, wow. in the area in northern italy it was ravaged by the plague at the time and for decades i don't really know the the history of the plague in the area but i know that at that time in around 1550 it was wiping out most of the population. And so all these basically pleas were scratched on the walls of the church. And then there were some other markings in red on top, like a big X with little crooked ears and a few other symbols. And they had an archeologist come in to determine what the symbols meant. And essentially what it meant was, thank God for saving us from the plague. So thank God the plague is over. Mm. So there's, we're in this tiny little chapel in, the, in Northern Italy improvising. And there's such a, a resonance to it, both the literal resonance from the sound, but also a, a connection with history. And to be living in, in peaceful times in this beautiful place and recognizing that so much suffering had been there for so long. Yeah. And that very much influenced our playing. Josephine Runstein is a classically trained violinist, and she referenced some medieval passages in her improvisation, Agnes Dei and Dias Irae, The Day of Wrath. Anyway, we collected this uh, couple of these um, improvisations, 
and went basically went through them and picked out a few of our favorites and made an album out of it. And the album is coming out on Arts and Crafts Records from Toronto uh, and should be available soonish. I have so many questions. I mean, the story is awesome. And can you repeat when was this retreat? When did it, it was in July of uh, 2019. Okay, so this so is before the coronavirus. That's crazy. So, so yeah, basically, we're while we're working on the, editing the album, the virus hits, and we're thinking, you know, I don't know. It, it was so many mixed feelings. Like yeah. if we connected the the, ha the the past to the present, accidentally, and yeah, I, I, it was it was really quite something, especially in northern Italy, right near the Lombardy region, yes. where it was first, you know, such a big deal. And the, the castle was just close to there. So, yeah, it was very, I don't know what the word would be. It's not serendipitous, but there's some kind of like uh, strange coincidence, some kind of coincidence. Yeah, to say the least, yeah. Yeah. And, and this kind, do you do this kind of writing retreat regularly? I know that you said that with this group, it was the first time, but is that uh, one of the way you create? Uh, normally I do when um with my bands we'll do retreats like uh we do mix i think we regularly go off to a cabin to record and write and that kind of thing but this was the first time i've done it with a group of strangers it was mm -hmm. uh i was invited by feist and she described it as being kind of heaven on earth and so i was like i have to go i know all these <laughs> musicians this is an incredible opportunity so it was very special it was connected to the people festival i don't know if you know the people festival that started in berlin It's, it's a kind of a global phenomenon of these basically bringing artists together to work on projects. I don't know much about it. This, I have never been to the People Festival, but this I know a lot of the same people were involved in organizing it. Wow, that's, that's amazing because if there's, I mean, I have thousands of words to describe both uh, Broken Social Scene and, and Do Make Say Thing, but if I, one which is really strong is camaraderie and feeling of a band of, not just a band of, of musicians, but a band of friends. You know, it's the, the kind of the feeling uh, having, uh, I saw Broken Social, uh, Broken Social Scene live, I think back in 2002 in France. And uh, seeing you guys on stage, that was so inspiring because you were having so much fun and the camaraderie was so strong. So it's interesting that you had this first experience of, of re writing retreat with strangers. So it's, I guess my question is, you guys are for real, right? When you're, when you look like you're friends on stage, you already are friends, no? Or you're super good at marketing. I don't know. I think at this stage, it, it's beyond friends. We've been playing together for so long that it's almost like family. And with family, there's a lot more, you're a little bit more free to argue. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. So, I mean, we're very dear to each other. We know each other very well, but at the same time, it's, it, we have we all have different views on certain things and and you know we when you live in close quarters like that and travel all the time together we know what to celebrate about each other but we also kind of sometimes we struggle with each other's personalities it's i mean if you look at you think of it as all those people in a bus at the same time there's bound to be some conflict between two of them at any given moment and because of that i think we have to work it out and i think it honestly i think it makes us better people in the sense that we have to resolve these issues because we're trapped together and you have to look beyond the, the sort of pettiness of, of finding somebody irritating to mm. recognize that they're also a creative force musically and, and to, to connect with them in that sense. 
So I think it's healthy, but ultimately, yes, we are, we are all friends and we've all known each other for so long. So we're essentially, we're a part of each other. You know, I can't imagine what I would be like without them shaping the person that I am. And if you had to compare like the creative process of Broken Social Scene and Do Make Say Think, because being a musician myself, I'm like, wow, this is difficult to create an idea with four people. But when you are like, you know, 10 or in some, I don't know what's the biggest, you know, ensemble or setup you, I guess it's over 15 or 20, no? It's like, it's yeah, ridiculous. Probably not 20, but yeah, <laughs> could so, be 15. That's yeah. incredible. I did a band with 10 people and look, I lost all my hair because of that. Come on, look at me. <laughs> um, so yeah, how do you yeah. guys go about creating together? And if it differs from one band to the other? I think the biggest difference is with Broken Social Scene, you know that you are adding your piece of the puzzle. Like it's, I mean, it's very rare in, in both bands that someone will come in with a completed song and teach everyone their parts. That just almost never happens. Sometimes it does, but it's, You know, we all understand that being part of the composition process is part of the joy. So especially with Broken Social Scene, we leave space. If you have a guitar line in mind, but you've already done a guitar line, then you have to step back and then say, what would Andrew do here and let him do his part? So there's a lot of, a lot of compromise and a lot of stepping back and almost kind of letting go of your ego a little bit. Whenever I start recording, I'm always bursting with ideas. Like I, I can play so many instruments that I would just imagine a drum part here or a trumpet part here. Like I can picture it all together. But when I know that I'm working with a big group of talented musicians, then I basically, all of us, we have to step back and, and let each other shine. And so often what we end up with is this kind of layer upon layer of different ideas. Everybody will come in and record their part. And then a, a smaller group of us, maybe Kevin and I or Kevin and Brendan and I, We'll get together, this is for Broken Social Scene, and listen through and kind of pick the most magical moments and try to make sure everybody is represented and almost like peel away some of the layers to reveal the song. And it, with Do Makes, I think it's similar, but really it's a different dynamic because of different people. With Do Makes, I think the drummers, we have two drummers in the band, and when we get together to write the song in the rehearsal space or in a barn or wherever, they're very much a part of the, the writing process. But then once we've got it recorded, Ohad, Ohad Benchitrit, Justin Small and myself spend months and months going through the recordings and shaping it and changing the tonal characteristics and adding overdubs and removing them. So it's really like you get the foundation built by the band and then we go in and do all the woodwork and all the fancy trimming, just the three of us. It's a, a bit of a different dynamic, mostly personality-wise because the, everybody approaches art differently. But ultimately it's the same. Everybody is, you know, their friends expressing the, their, their sel themselves through music. And I find that it's the same no matter who I'm working with. There's this kind of thread that, that comes through it all of just honest creativity and expression. I love it. It's, it's amazing to hear you say that. That was one of my discovery while I was losing my hair with the 10, 10, you know, 10 people band. That if I come with an idea, which is 95% the song that I want it to be, then it's super difficult for me to be flexible and hear the other people. 
So just as you said, you know, I, I learned over time to step back and come with an idea which is maybe 50 or 60% max and then yeah. just give it to the group and, and let it grow like that. Because yeah. it's, I don't know, I still find it too difficult when, I, when the song became my baby and I need to give it, it's too late. You know? So I need to, <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. I'm afraid where I'm going with this metaphor, but you, I, think <laughs> I find that when you have a song in your head and you have all the parts for it and you can hear it and you know it's going to be great. It's never as good as when you let other people do their thing. And then you're surprised by what people contribute yes. and it becomes something that's beyond yourself. It's something that's like a, a, a creation of a group of people. And essentially, if you have a song already in your head, then you're only going to try and get it as good as that. Whereas if you're um, allowing yourself to be surprised over and over again, mm. it can, there's no limit to how good it can be. It's, you just have to kind of let go of your ego a little bit and, and stop saying this is mine and just listen to you know what uh, sounds give you goosebumps and wow. keep going yeah oh, that's amazing i could go on this subject for hours but i know you know your time is limited so let's let's talk about the happiness project because you mentioned it in passing that it was uh, it was an experiment with the human voice and I got to tell you, this album had an impact on my life on so many levels. That was such a, a pleasant surprise, both the, the music, the, the, the surprising format and or not format, but like the techniques that you used mm -hmm. and the theme, you know, this overall theme of happiness and the discussion you were having. So could you maybe for the people who didn't have the chance to listen to it, describe it and then talk about which impact it had? Whatever yeah. that, that brings to, to your mind. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 2007 or 2008. It was the same time that Kevin Drew put out a record, uh, Broken Social Scene Presents Spirit If. Mm. <clears throat> and I had young children, so they went touring without me. So I was kind of left at home, you know, with my babies. And, and we spent all of our time basically on the front lawn. We live in downtown Toronto very uh, dense community, like houses, but all close together. So we have a little front lawn and then our neighbors have a little front lawn and everybody mm -hmm. around us has a, a porch. And so it's, Toronto is a really interesting city that way. It's a city of tiny villages. So anyway, I, I spent all my time on the front porch with my children. And so I got to really know my neighbors at this time. And I live in a multicultural neighborhood. There's a Jamaican woman across the street, a Trinidadian guy who lives next door. Mrs. Um, Morris, right? Couple, yeah, Mrs. Morris, yeah. A couple of Italian women who live just down the street, a few doors down. The sort of, the different melodies and characteristics of voices in the neighborhood was quite varied. And I, I found, I began to find it fascinating. So I had this idea of taking studying their voice. So I would invite them over to have some kind of friendly conversation and record it and ask their permission to do this. And and I tried to think of some kind of theme that wasn't political or wasn't wasn't going to get people. <laughs> I didn't want, there's certain melodies I didn't want, maybe say it that way. But, <laughs> but it, I invited uh, my neighbors over one at a time and just asked them essentially what they thought happiness was. And their responses were really beautiful. And, and they all had such um, amazing things to say. And it, the funny part is when they kind of get to their thesis, their main point, when, when they really find what they're trying to say, it's like they almost sing it. And their voice goes up mm. and down when they get to this, these most important points. 
So I, with the help of friends, went through the interviews and found these little melodies and played them on different instruments. Uh, Mrs. Morris, the Jamaican lady, was played by Leon Kingstone, an amazing saxophone player. So we followed her voice note by note on the saxophone. Mr. Gowrie, I played on guitar. He's a Trinidadian guy. Trumpet for, for Anna, who was uh, singing about working with the... Uh, mentally challenged women that she gets together with. She's a social worker, an incredible person. Anyway, so I, once I found all these melodies and all these moments of speech, which were often kind of profound, I treated those melodies as though there were any other melody. And then I would find chord progression that would fit, suit it underneath and loop it as if it was, as if it was just a, a repeating melody. And then sometimes I would take the voice away and leave the melody. Sometimes I would start with the melody and then bring in the voice. And it was really just for fun. I was just kind of playing around with it. And then I played it to my friends and then they shared it with their friends and they shared it with their friends. And then next thing you know, Arts and Crafts is asking if they can release it. And I'm surprised because I don't know what genre it is. I don't know like, who's going <laughs> to listen to it. <laughs> but they did. And so I toured it. I toured it with Do Make Say Think. And I toured it with Feist. And I toured it uh, pretty extensively. We, all the musicians learned how to play the parts live, along with the pre-recorded voices. And it was, uh, I would say it was a big success. It wasn't like a financial success, but it certainly uh, opened my life in terms of I met a lot of interesting people because of that project. And um, it connected me with the world in a, in a really nice way, it brought the right people out. And yeah, no, it's, it was a good kind of, uh, I would call it like almost a painting of the neighborhood, an audio painting of the neighborhood. You really get to know what, the, what my Toronto neighborhood is like from that. Yeah, and that was 10 years ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you won a Juno for that scene, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, and, and I think I, I read somewhere, you're like, but this is a jazz stuff. I, this is not jazz. Why do I, I remember? <laughs> yeah. that, I read somewhere that you were surprised to have won this. So how, how did that happen? I was shocked. I was shocked that I was nominated. I went to the nomination announcement and I was like, I don't know why I'm here. And then they said, said contemporary jazz. And they <laughs> said, Charles here in the happiness budget, like contemporary jazz. Wow. I mean, I don't know what else it is, but uh, it's funny when the record came out, it was played on the jazz station in Toronto. It was played on the classical station in Toronto. It was played on the indie rock station in Toronto. Like it got and. <laughs> National radio loved it. CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, played the whole album. <laughs> like it was just, it was one of these things that I don't think people understood it as a genre of music. It was more like a theater or something. Yeah. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, I wanted Juno for contemporary jazz and I still am confounded when I look at it. Wow. Okay. So I have again 50 questions in my head, but. Um... I want to go a little bit geeky on how the, the how you went from the melody to the voice, the melody of the voice to the melody and the instrument. Did you like wrote it and then people played it, or did just, for example, the saxophone saxophonist that you talk that you mentioned, did he just played it? Did he wrote notes? Or how how do you do that? No, that we didn't use any writing. There's no writing paper. What we do is listen to the speech you know a few words at a time like just loop it as two or three words mm -hmm. and then sit with the piano or with the instrument and say i think that's a g sharp or 
uh, you know. So okay. Leon would be like, no, I think it's a G. And then we kind of listen to it back and forth. <laughs> I mean, it would be so much easier now because I have the technology where I can, you know, make a MIDI map of it. Like it's the easiest thing to do now because the technology has changed. But the way we did it was, you know, just by listening to each word, essentially one or two words at a time and, and try and figure out what the notes were. And then we would record it and then move on to the next few notes and record that and then move on to the next few and record that and then memorize it and then play it again all together mm-hmm. so that it was more fluid. But no, uh, we didn't, as far as I know, nobody wrote it down. Maybe the harpist had a harpist come in and do one of the voices and she's a classical player. So mm-hmm. she probably wrote down all the notes, but mm-hmm. most of the people I play with are not uh, literate to music as much. This episode is brought to you by the Pikri tribe. Go to peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe, subscribe, and get access to the ad-free version of this podcast, the three steps method to find your peace of mind now ebook, and many more creative and peaceful goodnesses. Again, that's peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe. It's, do you speak some French since you're from Canada? Almost none. Almost my daughters, none. All, my daughter, I mean, we're in Toronto and, and basically people don't speak French in Toronto. Yeah. My daughters have, go to French immersion school and they went to French school, so they're totally fluent. Um, but it's an embarrassment for me to not speak French. Uh, no, I, actually, no, that's an embarrassment for me because what, when you were describing the process, how you know, carefully, okay, a few tones at the time, I heard fabrication artisanale in my head you know and i don't know how to say that in english but it's you know carefully crafting the stuff you know like, yeah uh, yeah i understand what it means yeah um i don't know how to translate it but it is arti- like artistic yeah, yeah like translate that an artisan is someone who works yeah it's really at the junction between work and art and it's you know there is the apprentice and i could really feel that when you describe the the, the process yeah. I, I think the arts and crafts movement was all about yes. that uh, yes Exactly. So the concept was so interesting and of the happiness project, but it is very much connected to your neighborhood as you were describing. So did you ever think about doing it with other, with other people, uh, you know, doing a second album of the happiness project, maybe on another theme or with another neighborhood or I don't know. Or... <laughs> yeah. I even, I did a lot of work on, as I was touring with, Broken Social Scene and Do Makes I Think, I brought a recorder and I recorded people around the world. I recorded people in Japan. I recorded oh, people wow. in Korea. I actually did a trip to South Africa just for a week. A friend and I went down and interviewed people because in South Africa, there's so many languages and there's, I don't know, 11 indigenous languages there and they have all these incredible phonemes in their language, like Klosa, uh-huh. the language. So there's, uh, you know, English is a very boring language in terms of the number of consonants or the number of phonemes in it. Uh-huh. And it's a, the more you get, I saw a map of it once. There was a, like a, an amazing, it was a kind of a linguistic studies, but instead of tracing the origins of words, they did the, a map of syllables uh-huh. or consonants and syllables, phonemes in different languages. And I find that the closer you get to Namibia, or right next to South Africa, mm-hmm. the more phonemes, the more advanced the language is. So it's this kind of suggests that language originated 
somewhere in in oh. near South Africa, because the word like it takes a long time. It takes a very short time to invent new words. A uh, new language can develop pretty quickly, but to actually include new sounds in the language takes much longer. Mm. So by mapping the number of different sounds, you can kind of see where the origin of language began. And that was a there's an article in the Time, New York Times, about that. That was interesting. Anyway, I digressed. But I did do plenty more interviews, and it just and I s still have them kind of sitting around. I was the plan was to make a movie, but uh, it, as often happens in these kind of things, you end up with way too much footage and way too much. Mm. It just becomes a daunting um, like bookshelf filled with work. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm going to do it, it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of work, and I'm just always busy with other projects. There is the possibility you know, in my retirement years that I will get back to. <laughs> but right now, I, you know, I'm working on other things which I'm way more interested in. I feel like the Happiness Project basically accomplished what I wanted it to do. Yes. But yeah, I was inspired for a while there to, to make a second album. And I started it, but never finished. So we'll wait until you yeah. retire. <laughs> 2030. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so that's not that long. It's not that long. <laughs> I want to switch gear a little bit. I read that you met some Buddhist studies. Do you have any spiritual practice first in general? Oh, I cannot see you anymore. Oh, that's, I'm getting a phone call. I'll decline. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you have Do you have a spiritual practice that you that you that helps you in your life? For many years, I would do a meditation retreat at least once a year for a month. I would either go to a, a Buddhist monastery or a retreat center or even just a, a little cabin in the woods. And it was a very big part of my life to take time away and essentially just meditate and pay attention to my mind and learn to learn about my mind. And I say learn about my mind, but it's really a practice. Meditation, the practice of meditation is about um, it's almost like paying attention to attention itself. So mm. you see how your mind jumps from one thing to the next, and you see these sort of patterns develop and how your, your awareness fixates on certain things and then how that dissolves and then you become fixated on another thing. And this practice uh, I found very helpful in terms of recognizing um, these fixations that we all have and kind of letting them at least letting them breathe a little bit so you have some kind of perspective, almost like a bird's eye view of what's going on in your life. So I did that very regularly, like at least once a year for a month, for maybe seven years, I'm not sure, seven or eight years. And I would try and keep up my meditation practice in between. But that was before babies. And then I had little <laughs> children. And it's hard to be a dad who goes off and tours and then also goes off and meditates. Like it's just not fair to my wife to be taking time. So my children kind of became my practice, you know, to, to watch your mind and be patient, especially, and to be so tired and wreck, you can see how your mind is jumping around and, and you, you, sometimes you get angry and sometimes you, you have to step back because, you know, kids are a lot of work. So I think my main practice became patience and, some of the more ordinary practices that everybody has to do. <laughs> mm. So I think that's a spiritual practice in itself. Parenting can be. Currently, um, 
I'm not doing any formal practice. I'm, I meditate occasionally. I was meditating with my kids, trying to do it daily for a little while there a month or so ago. But no, I, I don't have any formal practice in my life at this time, but I kind of long for it. I think once my kids are teenagers now, and I think once they're, um, they've moved on and established themselves, then I'll take up the practice of doing annual retreats again, because I do miss it quite a bit. Mm. That's amazing. I love the, uh, that you call parenting a, a form of spiritual practice as well, because the, the, all, the, my main motivation in, in meditating, and I was uh, in a short but intense spiritual retreat until yesterday, actually, uh, is because I really want to be present for my kids. And uh, you know, every second they change a little bit. I have two small kids, like six and two years old. And uh, every mm. second, every day, they are a little bit different. And it's the last time I will see them like that, you know. Yeah. And I don't want to miss out. So I'm curious about how do you, how concretely do you, do you use this time with your, your kids to come back to the present? It's not concrete. I think I did learn a few. My kids taught me many lessons when they were very small. For one thing, I, I remember one time I was playing with my daughter or I wasn't really playing with her. I was just sitting there calmly with her. In a sense, I was meditating as she was playing. And, and I thought maybe I, I could give a sense of calmness that she could then relate to and, and feel inspired by. And then she started crying. And then I realized that I needed to play with her. I needed to oh. get and play with her and engage with her because it, she, did not, she thought I was distancing myself. So I had this kind of realization that I was mostly thinking about myself. I was thinking about, you know, this is me being a, a, a good father doing something like that. And then I realized she's telling me what she wants. So I just have to listen to her mm -hmm. and I follow her. And then, so the real kind of letting go of ego is to, is to follow your children's lead and just listen. The main thing I found with parenting and meditation is to, is to listen to your kids, even though they talk and and talk and talk and oftentimes they're they're what they're saying is is just talking they're just making sounds but it's just so important to listen to what they're saying as much as possible and react to it and and show that you're connected with them make sure that they have a connection with the world because you're kind of their lifeline that that can kind of pull them out and point them to the the flowers at the side of the road and you can share in the beauty of the world with them you can point out the birds and you can point out the clouds in the sky and they can point it out to you and it becomes this kind of dance of noticing the world and i really think that the essence of meditation and the essence of spiritual practice is simply to notice your mind to notice the colors to notice the sounds to notice frustration to notice everything and with children you, you get this new fresh start where you get to notice the world again yeah. and 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 you need to let your children lead you in that because they're so excited by everything and you can join in their excitement as well. Now I have teenagers and I notice that I have to step back because they're not interested in me anymore. <laughs> so I basically just have to sit there and pay close attention but not engage too much because I feel like this is an analogy I have now for teenagers where it's almost like you're playing um, pinball and the ball is bouncing around up there and it's just bouncing around and you can't do anything about it. 
but then when it starts heading toward the gutter, you got to knock it back into place. <laughs> oh. So it's, you're not as active a parent as for teenagers, but you're, you need to be paying attention. You always need to just care about your children and pay attention to them. And, and through that, you learn about yourself and learn about uh, how easily you get distracted and how easily you get lazy and this kind of thing. You know, children are definitely teachers. Wow, that's amazing, Charles. That I've I've never thought about it like this. You know, I, I have this image, this comic that I saw once of a two years old who go to his dad and hey, daddy play with me, and the dad is reading the newspaper and he's not now, I'm or, or he's working. No, I can't. I work. Then the kid is six years old. He comes to the to dad to play and same answer. Not now. Mm-hmm. Then he's ten years old. Not now. And then when he's 14 years old, it's the dad who's, hey, but do you want to, yeah. do you want to, and the, 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 you know, the teenager's like, no, yeah. not now. It's like, not now. <laughs> and uh, that's, I fear that, man, you know, it's like, yeah. um, the, the time with the kids are, is so precious now and they need you. And, and when they are teachers at the same time, they, to relieve this, to relieve the beauty of the world through them, with them. And I love that you, the expression that you said that you, Yeah, what you said about the dance of noticing, I think that's very strong because they miss things, you know, they might not yeah. think about this cloud or, you know, this particular bird or, and yeah. we miss things as well. So that's nice that how, how, it, how it can balance itself. Do you, do you feel that the, this approach that you took with your children is helping now your relationship with them as uh, teenagers? And I'm asking you that for my own mm-hmm. selfish interest. I want to have a preview of what, ex, uh, what I, you know, what will come to my life in a few years. I mean, if it's not too personal to share, I don't want to put yeah, you on the spot. It's, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure quite how to put it. They're teenagers and they have, you know, teenage problems like every other kid. So I don't know, like, I, I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that in a sense, just because I think it's mostly just about uh, allowing them to be ordinary not putting too much pressure on them to be one thing or another and through the ordinariness you're also allowing them to have typical teenage anxieties and typical mm-hmm. teenage problems and you kind of help them through that as much as you can but my experience with having teenagers is that it's a bit more painful than having children because when you have young children, you can engage with them and you can really help them. When you have teenagers, it's the first step of letting go. And, you know, they're looking outside of the, oh. the nest, like mm. they're fledgling uh, birds looking outside of the nest and they're not so interested in their mom and dad anymore. And all of their interest is outside in the world, not in the home anymore. They don't really care too much about our opinions. Well, they're critical very critical of us my wife and i and the kids are very critical of us and i think that's healthy and you know they need to start yeah. questioning their identity and their their um sense of autonomy but it's painful i found that the years that from say age three to 12 was mostly pure joy as a dad it was incredible like just this love and playfulness uh and mutual care But as teenagers, it's hard because they're not interested in you and you're still so in love with them and they're unhappy with themselves a lot of the time. Like most people in teenage years don't like themselves and uh, that's a very hard thing to watch. Yeah, it's just, it's just different. It's, it's change and uh, I'm 
you know, ha happy and proud of my daughters very much, but it's hard to see them, hard to see them struggling, which is what they need to do. They need to struggle to, so that they can find themselves. Anyway, yes. again, you should be enjoying your time with your kids yes. now. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm going to stop this interview right now. Thank you, bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> no, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. That's, that's strong with you and, and very important. I can feel... I can feel how difficult it can be to see someone that you love deeply struggling next to you and know that if you try to help, it's the message is probably not going to land or it could make things worse even. So yeah. I can just go to next to sit until it's, they go through that. Because at first I was like, that's connected with what you said earlier about letting the ego, it's not about you, it's about them. But Actually, that's a little bit different what you said, right? It's, it's not mm -hmm. the ego. You're seeing someone you love suffering. So that's not your ego who's, who's involved. Oh, they don't want to spend time with me. That's a different, that's yeah. a different thing. Yeah, you're right. Oh, I'm going to enjoy until, 12, until they are 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's still things. I mean, last night we had an amazing conversation. Um, and my daughters are so informed and so articulate. And they're talking about Black Lives Matter. And they're talking about... Oh, yeah. uh, um, all kinds of current events and they're so informed and you know we're used to teaching them and you know, say something and then they it's now it's much more adult conversation and it's really enjoyable like mm -hmm. I, I have very stimulating adult conversations with with them and that's enjoyable but the, those moments are yes. you know rare mm -hmm. most of the time they're just a kind of stomping around the house mm -hmm. or dressing funny <laughs> and the, what you said before is also an answer to another question i wanted to ask you regarding you know if you regarding your children and, and creativity you know because you being a, a full-time musician and the music being a mm -hmm. huge such a huge part of your life but i, I love what you say no it's about telling them that it's okay to be normal to be ordinary i think is the mm -hmm. word you use so I, I guess you don't particularly push them or pull them toward music, right? Or how, how does it work? They live, they do live in a house filled with instruments. Yes. And <laughs> so they're constantly surrounded by music. And I, you know, I tried to get them to play instruments when they were young. I kind of, at this stage, I wish uh, I had maybe pushed a little bit harder because I want, I didn't want to spoil their sense of music because I know some people who are forced to play piano lessons end up resenting it and not enjoying Gitty, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't want to do that. So I, they learned trumpet and saxophone for a while and then they gave up and then they both took piano for a while and then they gave up. And now they're both playing electric bass and that was something they did of their own accord. I only helped by putting a bass in the room. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, but they will never play in front of me or not never, but uh, rarely. So they have discovered music on their own, but but I think I think I could have maybe pushed piano or or trumpet or saxophone a little bit more assertively without breaking. You know, I don't think you need to push so hard that you break their joy, but mm. I think I could have shoved a little bit harder because I just find, you know, music has brought so much joy to my life and it's a resource that I have. When I feel awful, I can play music. When I'm alone, I can play music. I can play music with friends. I can play music in front of people. I can play uh, music in front of lots of people or just a few people. It's a, it's a resource that is really quite incomparable. There's so much joy mm. that you can get from music. And I really want my daughters to have that resource available to them. So hopefully with their bass playing, they will find that 
the love of music and and have the discipline to keep going so that they can you know have this resource but but no it's it is a very careful dance of pushing them to play an instrument but not pushing too hard yeah i bet apparently it turns out okay if they if you said that they they found the the bass uh, the electric bass by themselves yeah. and that they are yeah. continuing to do that so yeah so far so good okay. <laughs> So we are already uh, one hour into it, and I want to be respectful okay. of your time. I uh, have the first ever um, community request for a question, you know. Okay. And that's from my two years old. I told him, yeah, I'm going to talk with uh, Charles Spearing. He played in two bands that really uh, crafted my young adulthood, my 20s. Do you have a question? And my baby said, uh, moustache. <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah it's all about i wouldn't have any creativity at all without the mustache <laughs> that, that's the secret okay that's what i want that's to the know. secret yeah okay thank you i'll, I'll tell him or I'll, I'll... <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna have to wait a while before he gets one though <laughs> so if you have i don't know maybe five ten more minutes mm -hmm. yeah i can do that i have a, another appointment at noon but that's you know an hour from now okay Thank you. Okay. So I have uh, three questions that I ask to every guest in the Peaceful Creativity podcast. And it's a rapid fire question, which just means that I won't react to what you say. You know, it's one okay. question, then you, and yeah. then next one. It's not a conversation. It's a question and an answer. Gotcha. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. What's something important you've changed your mind about recently? Something important I've changed my mind about recently Given what's going on globally, I've come to really believe that racism is not as simple as I thought. Racism is uh, most often subconscious, and I think that more people are racist than know it. I think maybe if you feel like you have, sometimes you just, sometimes you just get the right vibe from a person and you want to work with them. And that's, That's, that can be racism. Maybe if you get the wrong vibe from somebody, that's racism. You have to be very careful about how you're judging people. A broken social scene and do makes I think are giant collectives of white people. And I think we all are very progressive and we are all, we would all describe ourselves as being anti-racist, but somehow we've ended up being a band full of nothing but white people. And I feel like we fucked up somehow. I feel like uh, maybe we weren't open. I feel like we did something wrong. Uh, so that's this is as a result of what's going on in the world right now. And I think everybody needs to reflect and question whether or not, it's not even question. They need to look inside themselves and find out where they are prejudiced and rooted out. And, and Thank you. Which advice would you give to your younger self And at which age would you give that advice if you could go back in time? I, I, if I could go back in time and talk to myself as a teenager, I probably wouldn't listen. <laughs> But <laughs> what I would say is, is don't be so hard on yourself. I think that's the one thing that I recognize now with my teenagers is the stuff that I went through. And a lot of... Uh, self-hatred and disappointment is unnecessary and if there's a way of looking at it from a broader picture do that but i don't think i would have listened but the message would be don't be so hard on yourself 
Thank you. And last question, Charles, what is life? Life is the dance between awareness and attention. There's nothing in life that is not connected with awareness. And all of that you're aware of, there's a bouncing back and forth with your focus of attention. There's nothing in life that is not connected to awareness. That's it. Wow. <laughs> wow great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Charles, for your time and for all this great insight on a variety of topics. I'm, I'm really glad that we got to talk also about parenting, which is a subject dear to my heart and to uh, several of my listeners. Where can people find more about you and your various projects? The easiest thing uh, is to arts and crafts records. Uh, I think it's arts underscore crafts dot com. Anyway, you can Google arts and crafts records and they will have information about broken social scene and about the happiness project and about my new album. Thank God the plague is over as well as do make say think dot com, which is a website, which is really not we don't do anything with it so it's maybe not the most interesting place to go i also have an instagram it's just charles spearin and twitter i'm on twitter which i think is spearin charles it's my twitter handle i'm on facebook too much and i'm trying not to be on facebook but you can find me there <laughs> and so your favorite uh, or favorite i don't know yeah. your social media of choice would be instagram Uh, lately, a bit more, yeah. Twitter, I find, can be very good, but it makes me too angry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's too much news, that, so I have to be careful about going on Twitter. There's, there's a lot of brilliant people on Twitter, great writers with great points, but most of it is just pouring gasoline on fire, so mm -hmm. I have to be careful with that. Mm -hmm. Instagram is a little bit um, more benign. Mm -hmm. I try to stay away from social media more and more, but uh, I like to be connected with old friends. One more time, thank you for your time, for this great insight and for the wonderful music and, and positivity that you've been spreading around the world for 25, 30 years now? How long has it been? Yeah, I started my first band at 17, so and now I'm 48. Wow. So, yeah, a long time, 30 years. Please continue at least another 30 years. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you. I think this podcast is great. So keep it up. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Doing my best. And um, I'm very happy that you accepted my invite. All right. Thanks again. Thanks. If you want more of the Peaceful Creativity podcast, go to peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe. You will get the episodes before anybody else, the free easy tools for immediate inner peace ebook, the fun favorite and uncensored sound filter Sunday, and much more. You also get the satisfaction of supporting independent podcasting and help keeping the project alive. All of this for free. So go to peacefulcreativity.com slash join the tribe. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and as always, peace.